I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Last week, the United Kingdom acquired both a new head of government and a new head of state. To discuss the appointment of Liz Truss as Prime Minister and the accession of King Charles III, I'm joined by Florence Sutcliffe-Braithwaite and James Butler, who both have pieces in the new issue of the LRB. Florence Sutcliffe-Braithwaite teaches history at UCL. She's one of the editors of the Neoliberal Age, Britain since the 1970s, an essay collection that came out last year. And she's currently working on a study of women's activism and experiences in the miners' strike of 1984 to 85. Her piece in the latest LRB is a review of Waterloo Sunrise, London from the 60s to Thatcher by John Davis. Hello, Florence. Hi, Tom. James Butler is one of the founders of Navarra Media and a contributing editor at the LRB. He's written in this issue about the challenges facing Liz Truss and the ways her government is likely, or rather perhaps unlikely, to rise to them. Hello, James. Hi. During the wall-to-wall coverage of the Queen's death last week, there were bound to be a few odd things said. But one of the oddest was the BBC reporter or commentator who said that the cost of living crisis was insignificant now due to the gravity of this situation. I was reminded of a phrase of Glenn Newey's, grief totalitarianism. So much has been put on hold or delayed, including strike action and football matches, but no one seems to be offering a moratorium on energy bills out of respect to Her Late Majesty. This could be a moment to reconsider all sorts of things about the way the country is run, but it doesn't seem as if that's going to happen. We can see the full machinery of the state working hard to maintain continuity, to transfer the consent of the governed from the old monarch to the new. The Queen is dead, long live the King. The atavistic and often frankly bizarre traditions that we're seeing take place are a way of saying this is the way it's always been done, this is the way it always will be done. Is this, in fact, a vulnerable moment for the monarchy, James? I think it's really very difficult to say. I mean, I I like that phrase of Glenn Newey's, whom I wish were living at this hour, actually, uh, and who would give us um, something refreshingly different to the sort of 24-7 rolling prostration of the British media. There is something fragile about the moment, right? Um, And it's there, it's very visible in, in the way in which everything becomes articulated through... Uh, you know, the announcement uh, immediately had as part of the announcement, the king and the queen consort will do X, Y, Z. This is very traditional. It's how these things are announced. But, you know, I mean, it, part of the grief totalitarianism, it seems to me, emerges from a sense that actually this is quite difficult. No one really remembers how this goes. No one really remembers actually what it's like to go through this transition of power. And the way in which the monarchy is treated has changed quite profoundly since the 1950s. It has moved from an an era of ceremonial into this sort of period of celebrity. No one really is absolutely certain what it's for. You know, he is not held in as high, um, as high esteem as as his mother. And, you know, so I think it's, you know, I think it's very, I think everything is working, you know, uh, all guns blazing really, to make it uh, appear inevitable, as you say. 
and I think the way you can see that is precisely in the sort of this kind of very, very strange arresting of protesters. Um, so there, there have been these kind of arrests, including of people who are, are saying things like, you know, who elected you, which doesn't seem to me to be a particularly um, offensive thing to bring up at this moment. So, yeah, I mean, it seems it seems fragile. It, nonetheless, there, it, you know, it, I think one of the things you know, certainly I feel when I'm encountering this is actually how, how you know, how how profoundly integrated into all the machinery of the British state the monarchy is and how well-oiled, you know, those, the, the, those tracks are when it comes to kind of putting one, um, in, you know, putting, putting the new one into its place. So it's strange. At the same time, it's, it's both unfamiliar, but, you know, it's also, you know, everything is working flat out to make it appear unbelievably natural uh, and, and, and impossible to, to object to, really. Florence... Did the establishment have to work so hard in 1952 after George VI died to make sure that people would accept a young queen as head of state? I mean, it's perhaps hard to imagine now when she's been queen for so long. And I don't know, the idea of Charles's face being on banknotes, for example, seems really weird. But was there an equivalent moment of a different kind of anxiety that there was this you know, 25-year-old princess who's going to become queen? How was it? Or was it the kind of there was no republicanism and it was... Well, there was... There was her, her youth and her gender, but on the other hand, this was still a point in time when about a third of her subjects believed that she had been chosen by God to rule. So the, the context, a, a society where deference was, ju- was just much more pervasive, also made it in many ways a lot, a lot easier. I think a lot of the anxieties were around how the Queen would be proclaimed as head of state and what her relationship to the Commonwealth and particularly to India, which of course uh, was independent by the time that she was she became queen, um, would be announced. So obviously the queen couldn't be announced as Empress of India. Uh, so there was a lot of anxiety about how she would be proclaimed monarch and what that would mean for, for the empire and the Commonwealth. That was probably the locus of the main part of the anxieties in 1952. So, so how was she proclaimed? As... So the, the title Empress of India was got rid of. And in fact, instead of being proclaimed as using the, the phrase the imperial crown, that imperial was got rid of in favour of just crown, which was controversial for some people, for some imperialists at the time, but was seen as kind of necessary in order to keep all of the different constituent parts of the Commonwealth on board. So that there were those anxieties about she's not the Empress of India anymore, that at the end of the empire, and that one of the things that she's alternatively, I mean, some people praised the Queen for the way in which she oversaw the end of the empire and the, and the development of the Commonwealth and so on, and other people are, are pointing out the ways in which by being the head of state and the head of the Commonwealth, she was complicit in things like the suppression of the Mama rising in Kenya. and But one of the things that's often said about the Queen, that she provided this sense of stability to the country and to everyone, and here she is, and now that's gone, and so people have lost that sense. But returning to the, the cost of living crisis and so many other things, given the, the radical instability of so many people's lives in the UK, maybe it's a good thing that that, in fact, sort of totally illusory sense of stability that the Queen may or may not have provided has gone maybe it's like maybe we can look more honestly at the ways in which the stability she provided the, the, the structures that she sat at the top of and upheld were not <laughs> necessarily very helpful to many people 
Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 the coverage of the last few days does not, does not suggest to me we're in a, a particularly clear-sighted period. <laughs> um, I don't think we've been sort of suffering a, a, a surfeit of insight. But that question about stability or duty or the various kind of virtues that are attributed to her are, are I think, you know, it is a, a profoundly interesting one. Um, and I don't think I don't think it's interesting simply because you know I don't think it's the fact I don't think whether it is interesting depends on whether it's true right it doesn't actually depend whether she is you know especially virtuous or dutiful or or any of these things you know I think those arguments are, are in some ways unresolvable you know what I think is interesting is that there is clearly this sort of popular perception and a popular desire to see in some element of British political life to some extent all the virtues which are not present in elected political life uh, so, you know, commitment, duty, stability, and, and to, to, to some degree, a kind of transcendence of party. Not always historically true among British monarchs, by the way. And I think that's an interesting thing to kind of to, to, to look at uh, among, uh, you know, among people for whom uh, uh, the monarchy is an important thing. It, it does have a, you know, lead us to ask, OK, you know, this is something that she cultivated, you know, quite assiduously and with a sort of you know, what appears to have been some sort of iron will to, to not intervene in any way um, or, or to, to remain as kind of detached from, from the political as possible. Uh, and part of this is her education in Badgett as a child and, and the, the sort of distinction between dignified and efficient bits of the Constitution. And he's obviously going to be very different. That isn't who he is. You know, he is kind of, he's quite strange in, in some ways for that family. They're, they're historically quite philistine. He at least is sort of, interested in if not directly in thinking then in in thinking about thinking you know so so i i you know i think it again this returns us to this question of how this institution can endure when it doesn't have this kind of in some ways quite rather you know rather strange psyche at the middle of it the other question that is brought up by it to me and it's perhaps an odd thing for someone who has been skeptical of monarchy and its role in in british political life for a long time is actually you know, how profoundly damaging these roles are for the people who inhabit them. You know, she, in, in one sense, was was an outlier. I'm sure she was damaged in one way or another, but she sort of managed to sort of, I don't know, subjugate herself to the role in, in, in one way. So, whereas everyone else does seem to be rather damaged by the role of this kind of very strange family at the centre of political life with, with this kind of obviously strange projection of desire and virtue um, onto them. So, yeah, I, th this is the stuff that I'm left thinking about at, at the moment here. So I don't think it's going to provide um, a, a moment of, of particular clarity about British political life, other than in those terms, which, which is in some ways about the strangeness at the centre of it all. Yeah, and I think we're in a period of constitutional flux anyway. It's just going sort of, it's not being systematically thought about. And it's it's not just, you know, what's going on in Northern Ireland. It's not just the question of independence in Scotland. It's not just the growth of powers for the Welsh Assembly over the last 20 years. It's also the, the Conservative Party is, is actively getting involved and really doing a lot to reshape the Constitution. It's just not being presented in any kind of systematic way as a big moment of constitutional rethink. So earlier this year, the Tories brought forward an act to repeal the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which proposes to make quite radical changes to sort of who has the power to dissolve Parliament. And essentially, by saying the courts can't intervene in this issue and by emphasising that the monarch has no more than a, a sort of formal ceremonial role in this issue, 
they're really attempting to to hand that power entirely to the prime minister, which is a really significant thing to do. But it's it's not going remarked upon as as this moment of big constitutional reform. But that is happening anyway. So I think that the the death of the Queen um, and the accession of Charles is only going to make that moment more unstable. And is that a difference in the ways that the that when the Blair government changed the constitution and introduced the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly and reduced the House of Lords and those sorts of in so, I mean they were large changes but they were also in some ways not as large as they made out they were they sort of made a show of making bigger changes than they were whereas the conservative approach as you've just suggested is to sort of make quite large changes while pretending they're not changing anything yeah exactly um, and of course the Blair reforms went sort of incomplete in the end um, they were never finished off um, and I think that is a that is a real overhang there is real unfinished business there for a long time and that question of the I mean with the problems which are which are facing the, the new government and the, as Liz Truss I mean it's one of the other sort of differences between the different between the crown and, and parliament as it were that the speed with which the queen is not yet buried but Charles is you know on his his tour of the country and and all the rest of it whereas Boris Johnson resigned two months ago and you know even to the extent that over, over the summer there were people saying oh none of this would be happening if Boris was still prime minister and it's kind of well he is still prime minister and it is happening two months later Liz Truss has as long predicted has finally become prime minister but now we have to wait until after the queen's funeral for for parliament to do anything so this kind of this slowness but in a sense there isn't any time to wait is there as I mean I said before that there no one's um, electricity bills are being put on hold and in your piece James you you talk about the you say that trust comes into office just as Britain's poly crisis threatens to spiral out of control so could you perhaps briefly <laughs> outline what the, the poly crisis consists of right yes I, I, and you know uh, it, it, it is hard because there are so many fronts to it so obviously there's the energy bill question and it's been at the forefront of the news for a long time so it's the one that people are most familiar with and it's been obviously clear that the government will have to intervene in energy prices um, ever since Ofgem said this is going to be the cap in October let alone the one in the new year um, so so her her you know as soon as she's coming to office then saying that she is going to intervene that that none of that is surprising um, the form of the intervention is a little strange so it does hold down prices by by doing that by guaranteeing um, energy profits basically um, for up to two years um, it's a very strange intervention in that sense in that it, it you know effectively supplies these private companies with large quantities and really really large quantities of public money to be funded uh, it seems through borrowing and as you say one of the problems here is that you know this is probably going to be 150 billion pounds worth of intervention in the British economy, that's the kind of thing that politicians probably should be talking about um, and should probably have the opportunity to debate. And it looks like that whether Parliament actually, do, you know, so Parliament is going to rise, um, you know, not long uh, after the Queen's funeral. Presumably they will, you know, it does now sound like they will have um, a, 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 at least a statement of some kind. It will return of some kind in there. But but really, we're not going to see a very active parliament for a long time because it goes off on conference recess almost immediately um, after the funeral. So that's one thing. That, that's all kind of in the mix. And for her, it's you know obviously great in some ways not to have any scrutiny because it's a very sort of dodgy plan in one way. Then there's the question of the winter crisis. Now, the winter crisis is something that happens every year, but the NHS is in a particularly parlous way this year. 
there are th there's this long brewing crisis in accident and emergency. It's partly a consequence of kind of two years of working to absolute exhaustion, you know, uh, after COVID. But there, you know, there's there's also kind of longer term problems around funding and recruitment. You know, these these things are well known. The question then becomes: Does the do, do you know does the energy bill crisis have a, a knock on effect on the NHS, especially when combined with um, the winter flu and possible COVID resurgence? Um, we already have. Um, sort of spiraling ambulance response times, um, spiraling um, accident emergency wait times. It looks like there's probably 10,000 deaths in the period, excess deaths in a period running just a little bit under the past year. That's especially concerning among 30 to 50 year olds. Um, and it's that's one aspect of the statistics, I think, that isn't that aren't really out there. But some of this spike concerns people who you would really not expect to be dying in this context. So those, they, there are those two. And then there's the industrial front. Um, so we already have lawyers and railway workers on strike. Um, there is an enormous number of public sector uh, unions balloting uh, just as the autumn rolls on. So, you know, I say in the piece that it looks like this could be a winter in which nothing and nobody works. And it really could. And it's, a, and, you know, she comes into power in a context in which, uh, you know, her own party isn't thrilled about her. Uh, she's got a lot of party management to do. And they're pretty exhausted. It's been 12 years. Although she's presenting herself as a new broom here to tackle all the problems and yeah, fix fix the problems that are obviously nothing to do with her or her party. And that, as has often been observed, Truss likes to compare herself to or even dress up as Margaret Thatcher. And Florence, how do these multiple crises that the UK currently faces compare to the situation in the late 70s? Because there are questions of inflation, industrial action, winter of discontent and so on, um, that when Thatcher became prime minister... The obvious difference is that in the 1970s, Thatcher was able to to tell the story that the problem was that the country had had sort of 25 years of a kind of progressive or even a socialist consensus established by the Attlee governments um, and sort of adhered to roughly, at least, by governments of both Labour and Tory stripe um, in the years afterwards it really seems quite difficult for Liz Truss to really make that argument, given that the Tories have been in power for 12 years. Yes, there was a Labour government before that, but those three Labour governments were often have often been seen as managing to be successful, in part because they accepted certain key tenets of the, the Thatcherite consensus that had been established under Thatcher and then continued under Major. So, so we just don't have... There's no convincing story that Liz Truss can tell about how this is the fault of a socialist or statist government. I mean, that that's the line that she uses, right? And it's really very similar to the kind of line that Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph and others used in the 70s. Um, you see it in the Britannia Unchained book. It's It's all about British decline and this decline is because of statism and these new kind of brand of Tories are going to reverse it but it doesn't make sense because that's already happened that story's already been told so what was the Thatcher revolution in fact a complete failure I mean that seems odd to a lot of people who who feel like we have been living in a Britain that was in many ways created by the Thatcher revolution for the last 30 years at least so I think that's the huge difference and that I think is going to pose real problems for Liz Truss in telling a convincing story before you even get to the fact that her Thatcherite sort of 
solution to all our problems is cut taxes and cut regulation. And it's just doesn't seem very likely to work. And that is going to be another big problem that she's going to face. And, and besides, I mean, the question of it is not going to work and it's also not going to convince anyone it's working, presumably. That in terms of her sort of, that it seems to be that the Tories have been one, quite relishing the prospect of a fight with the unions because they can start saying, well, all these things that aren't working, it's the fault of the RMT, it's the fault of the CWU. But it, public opinion doesn't seem to be behind them. Yeah, it's also it's also that they're not facing just kind of classically industrial workers, right? I mean, lots of the people who are balloting for action here are, you know, respectable middle class, you know, often downwardly mobile middle class, but middle class professions, you know, lawyers walking out, criminal, you know, criminal bar walking out. You know, that that's that's a really significant thing to happen, and it's quite hard to paint them as being the RMT. The same will be true of uh, nurses to some extent, teachers to some extent, uh, and various things like that. So, so yes, you know, it, she has said, for instance, that she wants to put a minimum service obligation in place, basically to break the power of the RMT. And you can see how that's the kind of fight that she would relish, because it's the kind of thing that Thatcher would relish. It doesn't, however, seem plausible to me that that's going to go particularly well for her. And it doesn't seem that, yeah, and as you say, the, the polling suggests that there is an unusual degree of public sympathy with the strikes as they have, um, as they've been conducted so far. Whether that holds through a really long winter of very difficult strikes, who knows? However, I, I do think it's just impossible to discount the fact that, you know, it's, you know, it, as Florence says, it's really hard to tell a story where you're sort of insurgent against uh, a sort of failing, excessive undisciplined you know orgiastically spending socialist state it's so implausible that you know that i don't think anyone's going to buy it so the other way i think of looking at it is to say you know you know what are these people doing is it that quasi quarting is coming in and thinking well i might only have two years here so i'm going to do as he does appear to have done i'm going to turn around to the city and say what do you want that i can do in these two years you know, and so I don't know if you saw this. There's his he he has gone to the city and said, "I want to do Big Bang 2.0. That's the kind of the classic Thatcherite deregulation of finance. What is it that you want?" And so, in one sense, their their kind of uh, you know their classic class interests are really coming to the fore here. And you know, there are rumblings from the Tory backbenchers that maybe it's time to to do a spell in opposition, um, which is an unusual thing for them to say, um, right? Like it hasn't hasn't really floated around at least at least as far as I can remember for for some time and that sounds as if they've they're resigned possibly resigned to giving up I mean that quite fragile coalition that Boris Johnson built between the so-called red wall seats and the Tory heartlands are they are they more or less accepting that they're going to lose those seats in the those former Labour seats in the north and the midlands or is that I mean it sounds like it but two years is a really long time I you know <laughs> the it you know I and they will get to a general election and they will do what they always do, which is fight to win it. And they will do so unsentimentally. And um, whether that means that they adopt a strategy of attempting to to build back up those kind of classic, more classic sort of Tory heartland seats uh, and aim for a very thin majority or, or whether they attempt to do kind of Johnson 2.0. I think the former seems quite like, you know, much likelier to me. Um, there are problems there, um, which is that, you know, obviously the sort of softer end of the, the Tory coalition is currently repulsed by the Tory party and given the structure of her cabinet it doesn't look like they're particularly high 
on the uh, you know on on the list of affections. Um, if you wanted to bring those people back, you probably don't appoint Suella Braverman as your Home Secretary. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And the other thing which Trust has been talking about is restarting fracking, perhaps in the hope to, you know, if Thatcher had North Sea oil, she's going to have <laughs> shale gas from, from the South Downs. But the, but I mean, that raises also the, the question of the overhanging or behind or all of this is, is the question of the climate crisis, which again, the King may have flown by private jet from Aberdeen to London last week, but he does apparently care about the climate. And it seems if this government's going to do nothing really about that, and that could cause friction between the Crown and the Conservative Party. Given the the heat and the drought of this summer and the you know, possibilities of a terrible winter, a government that doesn't confront this is in, apart from the, it being wrong in itself to do nothing about it, most people would like them to now. I mean, I think there's kind of two things going on in the appointments and, and in how Truss's government is shaping up. So you've obviously got the kind of headline of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is, you know, I, I don't know if it would be fair to call him a kind of climate change denier, but he's certainly sceptical. He's certainly said things um, denigrating what he sees as a kind of alarmism around climate change, which seems pretty dangerous. But then there have been other people um, kind of brought on board and given jobs who who do have a, a kind of track record that's much, much better on these issues, uh, like Graham Stewart or like Chris Skidmore, who has been tasked with kind of saying in just a couple of months' time, how can government effectively reach the, its net zero target? So there seems to be this this kind of slight incoherence in what's going on. But I think the other thing that's interesting is that there has been this talk of a green industrial revolution which is a language that the Tories are sort of appropriating from the Labour Party and in fact from kind of people more to the left of the Labour Party and trying to give their own sort of twist to. And um, maybe it's a little bit like the uh, national living wage. But I think the, the kind of point of using that language for people in Liz Truss's circle is to sort of imply that green stuff is not going to happen just or even primarily because the government makes it happen, that this is something the businesses are doing already. They're doing it anyway. And what they need is facilitation by the government or they need government to get out of their way so they can do it better or they need government to just support them to do it. So I think that that's, the, that's maybe where they're kind of, where they're going to try and build up a narrative about Truss's Conservative Party being kind of doing stuff about the environment. Because, I mean, as you say, most people in their country are increasingly just recognising this as absolutely one of our number one priorities. So I think it's impossible to to imagine them not doing anything about it. I think that's right. And, and just to say, I mean, the, the fracking thing, I think it's interesting as a political signal precisely because I don't think it's going to happen. Right? It is enormously unpopular. 
and it's not one of the, it's one of these kind of situations where there's obviously someone's been reading something from the American press and probably some American right wing think tank in praise of it and sort of imaginatively transferring the sort of the geography of the American plains to Britain but that's not how it works here the shale deposits are under vast bits of the red wall they're under the weald um, n- neither of these places are places that you want to you know put thousands of little fracking wells and sort of poison the groundwater um, you know, the, these things you know these things are you know they, 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 it doesn't look like they're going to happen the geology in Britain is very unrewarding in terms of the extraction uh, of shale gas from from oil clay and things like that so so to me it seems to be a political signal but it's a curious one and, and as Florence says like a really weird and incoherent one it quasi Kwarteng has been quite coherent about and actually over the last few months when he has been sort of you know widely tapped up to that he's you know going to become chancellor he's been very clear to people in the conservative party that he doesn't think that fracking is particularly rewarding so what this looks like to me is a sort of political signal that says you know we're going to do everything possible and we're we're going to sort of leave it uh, uh, you know again as, as Florence says we're going to leave it up to businesses to make their decisions about where their capital goes rather than um, intervene from the center of government that obviously is you know in, in the longer term actually quite worrying when it comes to, to the climate question because it doesn't seem plausible to me that there is action at a scale and speed necessary that can be you know conducted in a sort of laissez-faire environment that you know that everything that we have in terms of evidence over the course of the past four decades suggests that that isn't how it works yeah and this is why i think that this is one of the big problems with the trust sort of narrative at a point in time when so many of the massive issues that we face point to the need for reform of the state so that the state can intervene better in a smarter way, more effectively, can coordinate, can do things itself on, you know, climate, the climate crisis is probably the biggest example of that and the energy crisis that's connected to that. But the NHS suggests really the same, the same thing at a moment where it seems to a lot of people like we need to reform the state so that it works a lot better. She's talking about an idea that's you know thirty or forty years old. Cut it, get rid of it. And um, so I think it, not only is it not a news story, it's just a story that doesn't really seem that plausible to a lot of people. Just just looking around ourselves at what's going on in the world, these huge issues that seem to require big concerted action. I, I suppose you could see a situation in which like a very, very, very talented politician of the right could take the evidence of the past decade and say, look, you know, it's clear that the state can't do the things that we need it to do. And it's clear that the state isn't functioning in the way that we want it to function. The experience of many people, the, the experience that many people are going to have of the state it is that uh, it doesn't, you know, do any, it doesn't respond to anything that they want. It doesn't respond to anything that, that, that young people in particular, so people I think particularly under the age of 40 in this country, do not have extensive experience of the state responding them, to them in a way that, that actually do, delivers anything that they need. So why, you know, you know re-articulate a, a kind of sense of, of the nation's problems along with a sort of small state ideology. You could just about see how a very t- talented right-wing politician could do that. I don't think that she's that person. And I think, you know, even in that situation, it's a sort of uphill battle. But there is an element to it in 
some of the publications that come out from that have come out from that free enterprise group of MPs um, after Britannia Unchained. So post Britannia Unchained, they learned the lesson of not saying British workers are the worst idlers in the world, um, and and so the, the the publications have become you know sort of less quotable. But it, the most recent one I read was Quasi Quateng's 2015 book, A Time for Choosing, or something like. It's an awful title. But it begins with this sort of almost conspiracy theory level reading of the role of the Fabian Society in the post-war period as imposing this sort of ideology of planning that has never gone away in the British state. And that combined with the existence of things like workers' rights being the sort of source of, of, of productivity woes. So there's obviously an element of that at play here. But if that, as Florence you seem to be that that story has run out of road... And I mean, in your in your piece in this issue, I mean, Florence, that you're I mean, you're writing about London, but those the changes that happened there that you you describe in London, I mean, in the whole of the UK and well, and worldwide as well. But those questions of deindustrialization, financialization of the economy, privatization of everything, gentrification, out of control housing market, polarization of wealth, those you know, to, of which 1979 was can be seen as a kind of a pivot from and what you say from a social democratic to a neoliberal age it, i mean is there any prospect of a of a pivot back to to a, a move away from that if if no one is buying that story anymore well i guess one of the big things that um john davis does in the book which i think is really interesting and, and kind of fits with what a lot of historians have been doing in recent years is to slightly undercut the narrative that sort of everything changed in 1979 and to point to a lot of ways in which things we associate with Thatcher were happening before 1979 and in some cases had their roots in big shifts that Thatcher was not in control of and did not set running. So deindustrialization is is probably the biggest one, which in Britain, in terms of jobs, jobs in kind of industry, were falling as a proportion of a whole since the mid-1950s. So long before the Thatcher period, which we often associate with deindustrialization, obviously because of the incredibly sharp deindustrialization that took place under her watch because of her, her kind of monetarist economic policies and then because of her determination to, to take down the miners. But deindustrialization was actually in train long before that. You know, in London there's a really sharp contraction in industry with the closure of the docks, particularly from the mid 1960s, and then other types of industry, especially in the in the 1970s, and that was already changing the kind of makeup of the city before Thatcher was in power. Before she started doing things like you know the Big Bang and the redevelopment of Canary Wharf, turning the Isle of Dogs into this kind of temple of high finance. So one of the things that Davis does is, I think, to point us towards these other long-term shifts that were very important in changing London and also in changing um, the country as a whole. And what that kind of points us towards is that maybe in a way this is sort of um, counterintuitive, but in order to tackle some of the legacies of the Thatcher years, we might need to think about how they weren't all created by Margaret Thatcher herself. You know, we're working in quite a different context in the the aftermath of, you know, the rise of the service sector and the huge decline in the number of people in Britain who work in, in industry. And we have to sort of take take that context into account. So that 
if Thatcher managed to ride the wave, as it were, and kind of attach her name to these moves and to some extent accelerate them, but they were already in train, but she was able to take that moment and, or, I mean, make it hers to the extent that we now, you know, use Thatcherite as the label for that. If that wave has has broken and the the tide is withdrawing, as it were, could it, could an equally skillful politician, if there were one of of the left or right, kind of take that opportunity to you know to to ride that other wave? I mean that because there was that movement from a more statist, social democratic policy to a to what we have now. But if what we have now isn't working and at this point most people seem to think it's not working a majority of people want to nationalize energy and all, all sorts of other things is there the could there be the opportunity after the next election or at some point for that to go the other way or in a new direction or are we just going to sort of disappear into the ground in a kind of mire of culture war and tax cuts i don't know yeah i think the the crucial phrase would be um a new direction rather than just a swing of the pendulum back to you know, what we had or what we were imagined to have before 1979. Um, one of the other really interesting things that John Davis talks about in, in his book is the way in which there were a lot of criticisms being raised from the left, from the radical left, of how the welfare state and municipal socialism was working in London before 1979. So perhaps the biggest example that he gives is the example of the squatting movement, which was basically criticising the failure of local authorities to house people effectively. So local authorities, a lot of them had these grand redevelopment plans. They bought up all of this housing stock and then they left it empty while they waited for these magnificent plans to come to fruition, which was often years, years and years and years. And so the, the radical family squatting movement said, we need to move people into these abandoned houses because people need homes now these ridiculous dreams that are never going to come to fruition are meaningless. And that's just one part of this whole kind of critique from the radical left of the welfare state as too paternalistic, too bureaucratic, unresponsive to people's actual lives and their actual needs. And so I think when you when you sort of recognise all the ways in which the, the kind of post-war settlement was being critiqued from the left as well as the right in the 60s and 70s, it becomes even more obvious that what we should be kind of looking for now is not simply a, a kind of swing of the pendulum back to a, a kind of social democratic settlement inaugurated in the sort of 50s or 60s, but someone able to kind of chart a new course and kind of come up with a, a new story to tell about the big ways that Britain needs to change. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I, one of the one of the great mistakes I think that. British centre-left and actually probably the British left more widely makes is to imagine that you know the state remains a sort of static thing that you sort of either inflate or deflate by pumping more or less money into it and actually the, the shape of the state changes right the, you know what the state concentrates on and does or pulls its kind of constant you know pulls its uh, energy into you know changes quite profoundly from period to period you know, one of the questions about this is, you know, th this is this is always most obviously clear when it comes to the disciplinary arm of the state, right? Which is, you know, remains always quite well funded, um, but 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 the way in which it operates changes, you know, quite obviously over the course of of the past century. 
but I think you know that 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 to me is the question that anyone has to face now. It's obvious that the kind of the, the way in which the state is set up isn't working, um, and that doesn't mean just that it needs to get bigger or that it needs to get smaller. It means that thinking about what it actually does and how it does it is probably going to need to change. And one of the ways that that does happen is being honest about the way it is changing. That's very difficult for the Conservative Party right now, of course, because it would mean being honest about Brexit, which is the, the sort of other elephant in the room here. You know, other kind of enormous constitutional change of the last few years that no one really talks about anymore, you know, except when it comes to sort of, you know, enacting this completely mad Bill of Rights, um, which is, you know, it does seem to have fallen by the wayside that, that even the trust government recognises that um, this is going to be a very difficult thing to do. And so, or it might be on the back burner for a bit. The other side of this, though, I would say, and I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that we're both kind of talking about in one way, is that is, is the role that kind of the imaginary reconstruction of a kind of past political settlement plays in the way in which people kind of build their future. So, you know, on the right, this is often the sort of, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg likes to talk about the Victorians, um, and he does so often rather ineptly. But, you know, it's part of a wider kind of peon to classic British liberalism, which is there in, in kind of bits of Keith Joseph. It's there in bits of, of kind of the early Thatcher, I think, as well. On the left of British politics, that's often the sort of 1945 moment. I think probably both of those are sort of historically exhausted um, examples now rhetorically. But I think that's in, in the mix here. And so I think it's in some ways understandable that people reach for some sort of um, imaginative anchor for their vision of the future. But maybe it does attest to the fact that like there really don't seem to be, well, there don't seem to be many new ideas at all in British politics at the moment. And, you know, as Florence says... That it's, it is curious that the right is reaching for absorbing and sort of rearticulating these phrases from, you know, bits of the, the sort of slightly farther left than, than the Labour Party is currently oriented around. And, and what it speaks to is a real lack of new ideas. And I, you know, I have to say, I don't know where they're going to come from in contemporary British politics. You mentioned just then the, the disciplinary arm of the state. I mean, in terms of some of the most lasting achievements i use that word advisedly of the of the johnson administration where the the, the police courts and sentencing bills and those those things and that and also i mean when you mentioned talking about squatters rights florence i was just remembering those scenes when the um, after the invasion of ukraine and when people occupied a, a house in in belgravia that had belonged to a russian oligarch that had, who's had his assets frozen and people moved in and the number of police who turned up to protect that that property in the way and then of course last week the, a, another young black man was shot dead by the Met and a march through London to, uh, to remember him was mistaken on Sky News for a procession for the Queen because obviously there's only one person's died in the last week who, who anyone could possibly be mourning I mean in a sense that Britain became more authoritarian under Johnson I mean it, that that is is that the sort of the one concrete thing that happened <laughs> I I would I you know I would say I would say yes it's one of it's actually one of the kind of unarticulated achievements of the, the Johnson ministry is that, you know, is that in one sense, it kind of, uh, it, 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 there was a rapprochement between um, the Conservative Party and the police, which very unusually under Theresa May, who had been in some ways the most aggressive Home Secretary when it came to, you know, standards in domestic policing, that there, there had been, you know, rather a froideur between them. So yes, that, that you know, I really think, you know, that there there is a kind of reshaping of the state there. And it's certainly 
much more of an achievement than getting Brexit done because, of course, one of the things that we are seeing right now is that Brexit really isn't done. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the other things on, on Truss's plate, actually. And she's been very kind of aggressive about the Northern Ireland Protoco Protocol when she was Foreign Secretary, but, um, you know, it's, it's going to continue to be a headache for her in power. And going back to, I mean, you mentioned Sola Braveman being the Home Secretary. I mean, the other thing, and that fracking seems to be a front in the culture war more than anything else. How much mileage do they have in those, in in the culture wars? And in the, I mean, the, when we saw in the early stages of the, or maybe throughout the leadership campaign, there was quite a lot of sort of slightly weird position taking around um, trans rights and and about and there's you know and then no boats at all are going to cross the channel, which it kind of <laughs> and, and which also made me think about the well, you know, what about the the cargo ships going in and out of Dover? But the, is that something that they're going to push harder on? As as all these other questions that you know they're not going to the fight with the unions isn't going to work. They're shrinking the states, not going to work. Tax cuts aren't going to work. Does that mean they're going to have to really double down on anti-immigrant and transphobic, homophobic rhetoric? Yeah, I mean it, that does seem likely, and I suppose it's one of the things that sort of makes it all the more understandable that you know the Labour Party, the trade unions, have taken the this very cautious approach to everything that they're going to say and do during the period of national mourning for the death of the Queen because the culture war is the big thing that the the Tories seem to be able to succeed in so so sort of taking the sting out of that does seem quite important in order to shift the debate onto the the sort of you know the really practical things that actually do make a big difference to people's everyday standard of living where the Tories have really very few effective answers. Yeah, and that and the question of that now's not the time to start saying abolish the monarchy because that's just handing a cultural victory to the to the right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or maybe now is the time. <laughs> well, someone's got to say it. I mean, you know, I mean this is the thing that seems so I mean, this is the thing that seems so absolutely mad to me that that, you know, the, the the one moment at which it becomes salient um, and becomes, you know, at, at the forefront of, of, of people's minds is the one moment at which no one feels able to say that maybe in a, a sort of, as a basic measure of self-respect, we shouldn't be governed by a monarch. I mean, you know, it's, it does seem, it does seem kind of crazy to me that, but, you know, at the same time, I know where it comes from. I know exactly why um, the sort of fear of being on the, the front pages of the Daily Mail you know, or page three of the Daily Mail for, for saying something, you know, true about the world. You know, it's it's a very unpleasant thing. And look, I, I have, you know, friends and former colleagues who are who are this week subjected to astonishing amounts of racial hatred um, for, for, for saying things in public that are not even particularly critical of the monarchy. You know, it doesn't. They don't even need to say it. That it is. They're already kind of. You know, already interpolated as a sort of. Um, you know, someone who's going to say something subversive, and they get this abuse anyway. So, so just the, the other thing on the culture war is that I think there are two really important dimensions of it. One is that I think those of us who are inclined to look at history primarily through the lens of economics tend to slip quite easily into saying things like uh, that suggest that the culture war is always around things that are insubstantial you know I'm a gay man I you know that the culture change over the course of the past 40 years has been absolutely enormous so the culture war is in one sense about real victories and real kind of substantial political changes 
on the other hand, it does seem to me that that it is also the sort of, you know, last resort of the scoundrel. You know, it does look to me like the new generation of kind of conservative politicians are really very strongly focused on it. And that's the thing that was most startling to me about the behaviour of some of the sort of younger candidates or sort of fresh-faced candidates in, in the leadership election, Kemi Badenoch most of all, is that they were all absolutely trained on this stuff um, and, and it's absolutely central to their politics. So I think it's, you know, I, I think it is on, in the one ha- on the one hand precisely a distraction from, you know, from things that, that are tangible and real and, and that, you know, are the bottom line in a very literal sense. Um, at the same time, you know, it, it feels to me that the, you know, these people really want it's, you know, it's not for them just a distraction. They really do want to change um, the fundamental setup of culture, and that's not great. I mean, as your also as your piece about London makes clear, Florence, that some of the great post-war strides forward in in Britain were those in the late sixties that the questions of about gay rights and abortion rights and those things that were some of the most lasting achievements of that time and the idea and you know as we've seen in the the united states you think those rights are secured but actually it turns out they never are and there are people who want to roll them back and you have so yeah and and interestingly when those legislative changes were introduced they weren't introduced on the back of a big wave of popular popular opinion popular desire to change these things you know introduced often for you know much more narrow kind of reasons um, so, you know, on abortion, in order to stop huge numbers of injuries and deaths from illegal backstreet abortions, which were very disproportionately affecting poor and working class women, because the wealthier women were, were able to access legal abortions through a kind of legal loophole. So this was a kind of socialist issue and an issue about women's health and children's health. But then in the decades since then, those legislative changes have become deeply embedded in the culture and and much more widely accepted and supported. So the change actually in many ways was more kind of kicked off by those legislative reforms than sort of uh, given a seal of approval by those legislative changes. But you're right, they, they are still, they can never be taken for granted. Florence and James, thank you both very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can read Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite and James Butler's pieces in the new issue of the LRB, along with Sheila Fitzpatrick on Soviet passports and Ian Jack on the Kalmak Ferries scandal. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilburn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>